And I am Aware Now. Aware Now, the official platform for causes. Tune in and turn it up as we raise awareness one story at a time for the causes that tie us all together. This is Captain Brett Crozier, and this is Aware Now. Brett Elliott Crozier is a retired captain in the United States Navy. A U.S. Naval Academy graduate, he became a naval aviator, first flying helicopters and then switching to fighters. After completing naval nuclear training, he served as an officer on several aircraft carriers. In the spring of 2020, he was the commanding officer of the aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt when COVID-19 broke out among the crew. He was relieved of command after sending a letter to Navy leaders asking that most of the crew be taken ashore, which was subsequently leaked to the press. Crozier retired from the Navy in March 2022. He now lives in San Diego and works with veteran nonprofits, where he continues to serve those who have served. Captain Brett Crozier, first and foremost, thank you. Thank you for your service to this country. You're welcome, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you also for taking this time to share your story and aware now. Uh, you know, of all careers of service are noble ones. You chose to be of service with a career in the Navy. My first question for you is what is it that drew you to the Navy? Yeah, because my dad actually was in the Air Force. So people would assume that that's where I would have gravitated to. He did a, he did a couple years in the early 70s in the Air Force. Um, he wanted to fly, but he couldn't because he was colorblind. But that kind of exposed me to aviation at a really young age that I think uh, kind of planted the seed that car carried with me the rest of my life. So I knew I wanted to fly, fly airplanes, and I wanted to be loud and fast. And, and so then I, you know, we lived up in Northern California, uh, a town called Santa Rosa, and I spent a lot of time on the water. I was a lifeguard. I was a sailing instructor. So I had this affinity for water and, and eventually the ocean and surfing and stuff. I also wanted to fly. I knew that was something I wanted to do. And and then I almost embarrassed to admit it, but in 1986, this incredible movie came out that we all know is called Top Gun. And, and that was something that helped me kind of just understand a little bit about, Hey, you like being on the water, you like flying and man, the Navy, you can do all of that. So that set me down a path uh, onto the Naval Academy after I graduated high school and then on to flight school. And, and it met every goal and, and, aspiration I ever had about it and you know it was exciting it was fun there's a lot of travel you got to see the world uh you had some challenging times obviously but uh, I find you know I look back and I'm glad that that the seed was planted many 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 years ago but uh but it grew and I was able to do exactly what I wanted to do and I feel lucky in that regard and it was as fulfilling as I had hoped it would be awesome that's awesome when you can find your way so organically uh right. you know so careers of service require sacrifices, but they also offer rewards. So next questions for you are these, what was your hardest sacrifice that you had to make in your career? And then what was your greatest reward? So the hardest sacrifice is always when you have to leave home and, and leave your family and friends behind. Um, you know, you'll come back. I mean, there were times when we left to head out to combat and, and you know, we were war footing as a nation for many decades. So. There was some uncertainty, but in general, you knew you'd come back, but you knew you were going to be leaving for not just 
a week or two, but months, maybe even a year at a time, and in some cases more. So I always found those the hardest moments in my career is when, you know, initially when it's just my wife and I, later when we had kids. But anytime you're gone and you're out there for six, eight, 10, 12 months at a time, it's a challenge and you have to kind of move on and you, you learn how to compartmentalize and focus on the task at hand so you're not distracted. But those are always hard. Also equally rewarding when you came back and and uh, and get a chance to kind of kind of get reacquainted and and, uh, and a chance to to grow. And I, you know, they say in the military, your relationships outside of the military are really strong if you nurture them well or they become really problematic because it's hard to be gone that long. And I think I was lucky enough to pick the right person. Um, my wife was super supportive and my kids were super supportive. So it ended up being that, you know, I think in many ways our, our life got stronger, our relationship got stronger, even with that long absence. But but it was never fun. And, and any ship that ever goes to sea, you know, it's that first day underway when you're leaving home for months on end. There's just that that kind of, you know, depressing feeling across the ship. You're excited about what you're doing, but you know, you've left your family behind and you, know, you have to, you know, it will be many months till you come back. So uh, I don't forget those moments. And I think, you know, for me, the rewards obviously were just as you got more senior, I was entrusted with a lot of things, you know, both flying multi-million dollar helicopters and million dollar fighters, but also the leadership opportunities. And I felt, you know, the biggest rewards for me that I, I was having so much fun doing what I was doing, but also getting those chances to lead my case sailors, right? You know, whether it was small groups to eventually a squadron size, you know, and 250 people or eventually to an entire ship and an aircraft carrier with 5,000. Those were extremely rewarding moments and a chance to, you know, that you've been not only doing well and being rewarded for your performance, but also a chance to make a positive impact. And, and I found those moments the most rewarding by far as a chance to lead and make a positive difference on the folks you've been trusted to take care of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine what that must have felt like, especially when you're talking that that scale 5,000. It's wild to me. Um, this, yeah, it's like a city. I mean, aircraft care is like a city with all regards, but uh, but it was also exciting and fun. And, and like I said, rewarding when uh, when things are going well. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, so let's talk about lessons. A lesson your dad taught you was this. I loved I loved hearing this from you. <laughs> when you borrow somebody's truck, you have to fill up the gas tank, clean it, and bring it back in better shape. My question now is how did you apply this life lesson to your career? Yeah, I, th I think my career and my life, what I learned from that was the importance of making a positive difference positive difference and use that time to do just that you know the reference to the car was if you're going to borrow something make sure you return it in better condition but in the military i saw that to mean that you know you've been entrusted with an airplane or a helicopter or leading a large group of people how do you make it better than when you found it now in the military we rotate quite a bit we rotate our jobs every couple of years so you don't have the same leg you know you're not with some organization for 10 20 years even though i was in the navy for 30 years I served in 20 different you know, capacities within that third year. So you're always kind of rotating every couple of years. And the goal was always to make a positive difference. So you go into it with a mindset of, I'm not just here to, to keep the ship floating. I'm here to make the ship better or the squadron better and leave it in better hands. So that way, when you turn it over to somebody that's going to be equally capable, you can be confident and proud of the fact that it's in a better place. Maybe it's better trained. Maybe it's better conditioned. Maybe the crew's in a better place You know, they're with morale whatever it might be, but find those things to make it make a positive difference and then turn it over to your relief in that way. Mm -hmm. And like you, you just said, both in your career and your life in general, uh, it's a good lesson for all of us to apply in a number of different ways.
Sure, yeah. Um, so when you were the commanding officer on the USS Theodore Roosevelt, you knew that there would be challenging days ahead, but more rewarding days beyond them. So what was your most challenging day on board? And then what was your most rewarding in that specific uh, space? Yeah, so during that tour on the Roosevelt, like we said, there's 5,000 people. It's a city and there's a lot of young sailors. I mean, the reality is your average age of a sailor on an aircraft carrier is about 22 years old. So it's a young city um, and they're eager and they're, you know, they're, they're, you're giving incredible responsibility to them, whether it's working on the flight deck, which is one of the most dangerous places in the world to work or driving the aircraft carrier. And I only been there a couple of months. I think that the hardest day that I looking back was actually Christmas day, the first year when I found out that one of my young sailors had taken his own life uh, on the base. And, you know, you went from this exciting, we're getting ready for deployment. We had this big Christmas festival on board and this big deal. I actually brought a lot of my family on board and then got the call that one of our sailors that was just off the ship and living in the barracks had, had taken his life. Um, I don't, you know, I didn't know him. I hadn't been there long enough to know him, but obviously, you know, it's a, it was a reminder of the fact that we have a lot of folks on board. Everybody can be, you know, struggling at times. There's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days, particularly for that sailor. Obviously it was a bad day and there's a lot of things that led up to that. Um, but it kind of reminds you of the responsibility you have as a commanding officer, as a captain of a ship, you're responsible for all of them. And, and, you know, whatever the circumstances you're going to, you know, I knew I wanted to do all I could to prevent things like from that from happening. Um, because it was, it was a, it was a large city, but it was also a large family. And I felt responsible in many ways, not necessarily for that incident, but I knew that I had to do all I could to prevent those things from happening and making sure we had the care available for sailors when they were struggling. And uh, yeah, so I won't forget that day. That was a tough day for sure. Absolutely. Um, so the, the most rewarding day on, on the ship, the most rewarding day on board. Um, yeah, there's a lot of them. And that's, and that's the good news. Despite all the responsibility and, and the pressure at times, there was many, many rewarding days. I mean, the day I took over the ship, there's a lot of fanfare. There's a band. There, there, there's the whole pomp and circumstance you get that only the military can do so, so epically. Um, that was an incredible day. Every time you get underway, I mean, when you get the ship underway, there's so many things that go into it from an engineering standpoint to navigation to operations. Those in themselves were rewarding days you do a big operation that might be high risk where you're alongside another ship and you're transferring millions of gallons of fuel. One of those things where at the end of the day, you're tired, you're exhausted in many regards, but you're also extremely proud. And I found the days that were most rewarding when I could look back and be proud of the crew and all they accomplished. Um, because it is such a large organization with so many young sailors that are trying to do great things and, and uh, it's great to see it all come together. So I had many rewarding days. You know, I remember my birthday when I turned 50, I got to go fly a helicopter. I used to fly quite a bit actually, um, because I was a pilot. In fact, all carrier CEOs are pilots as well, or navigators. Uh, I got to fly and I could still fly a helicopter and I could still go fly a fighter jet. So personally, those were the days I also remember when I got to go launch off my own aircraft carrier and a Super Hornet and go fly around the South China Sea. Or my birthday, I got to go fly a helicopter around the ship and and, uh, and check out the ship. You know, I thought that was a pretty neat, uh, so there's many, many rewarding days. In fact, there's way more rewarding days than there are negative days. And when I look back, I, you know, I almost have to think hard about the hard, hard days because they're just, they're, to me, they're trumped by the, the positive days and all the great things you got to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
Um, you know, so I've not served in the military. I've never been in the Navy, but my husband, Jack, was. And he's told me stories of times at sea when the right decisions, often hard decisions, had to be made quickly and confidently on board in order to like actually save the lives of his crew members. So I'd like to talk about the decision you made when COVID-19 came on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt, the decision that you made that cost you the career that you had as you chose your people over protocol. At that time, COVID-19 was only surrounded by fear and unknowns. It was, it was super new. How did you know that the decision that you made was the right one? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think the reality is there's very little in life that's black and white. And as the CEO, commanding officer, captain of a ship, there are times when you make decisions quickly, navigations or maneuvering the ship, or decisions about operations that if not made correctly will lead to some kind of tragedy. Um, it doesn't mean they're always black and white. You're just going to use your judgment, your experience, your wisdom. So when COVID-19 hit and we had we were dealing with this now on board the ship, which is a confined area, and we were watching this positive spread that was, you know, exponential in terms of the, you know, the, the spreading of COVID, you know, across the ship. And, you know, for anyone has been on the ship, obviously at the close confines, it's hard to, you can't, I mean, you can't socially distance. There's no way to separate yourself. And so it's just going to get worse. There weren't any, I mean, it was still wasn't a black and white decision though. I mean, I think the reality was, you know, you do the best you can. You listen to the advice of everybody around you. And we had complete medical teams on board. We had an epidemiology team on board that helped analyze the information. We had, you know, had experts in medical fields and supply fields and engineering fields. And everybody's kind of advising you. And I, at the end of the day, the decision is going to rest with me as the captain of the ship. And I was faced with a situation where I can just continue the status quo and hope that it gets better. But as we know, hope's not a great strategy. Or I can do something where I feel like at the end of the day, I know I will have done all I could to protect the crew. You know, I go back to my previous times in my career when things happen to unfortunate circumstances to ships. And I know there's captains out there they wish they had taken some action. So I've always... I'm always the one that's going to bias towards action. I'm going to bias towards making a difference and not sitting back and just hoping things work out. So in that case, it felt like, you know, there was a big log jam in terms of information flow and an awareness across not just the Navy or the Department of Defense, but the entire nation, maybe the world. We were all trying to figure this out. I just knew that I wasn't willing to accept the risk to the crew as we try to figure it out. And I knew that, you know, by taking some kind of action, at least making everybody aware of the problem, then at least I'll know that everybody had the same information I did and they knew how concerned I was. And I knew that even though that everybody else out there wanted what was best for the crew, no one wanted as much as I did. And I knew then as this captain of the ship, if I'm responsible as a leader for my folks, you know, if I wasn't willing to risk my career and, and, bring attention to it, then I probably didn't deserve to leave them anyways. And so I did what I thought I needed to do, but it wasn't black and white. And there wasn't any, uh, you know, I never felt like, yep, this is going to solve the problem. I, mean, I just knew that it was going to at least tip the needle in the direction I needed to get things moving. Um, but I also knew the end of the day I could live with it. I knew that whether it's a week, a month, a year, 10 years, you know, what are we on four years now, three and a half years, I could still live with it. And I do. And I, you know, it wasn't an easy decision at the time, but I'm glad I made the decision I did to at least make sure we got all the help we could because I didn't want to leave anything on the table. The crew was too important to me. 
Well, thank you for making the decision that you did. Um, I think it inspired a lot of people. Um, it inspired me. Um, so do you feel that taking the stand that you did will lead to different policies, different protocols that will, that will put the safety of those who serve first? I hope so. I, I think the military is a learning organization. I think to be good in, in the, the business of war fighting, you have to be able to adapt quickly and adjust. As, as we say, um, it's still a large bureaucracy. I mean, the Department of Defense is the largest, you know, institution we have in the, you know, in the U.S., so to speak, when you think about active duty and civilians. So it's hard to make changes. But I do think that they, you know, they've learned a lot from it. I think we've learned how to deal with pandemics. I think that they made changes. I also think that future leaders will look in the situation and hopefully looking at it now and studying the case now and thinking about how they make might make those same decisions in the future or not. And maybe you'd be okay with the fact that, you know, if you're going to do it for the right reasons, it's okay to, to you know, to, to make those decisions. If you're doing it for the right reasons for your crew, then maybe they're going to be inspired by, you know, the decision I had to make. And that can be my only hope. You know, I've got, uh, I had a son that was active duty, another one that is active duty now. And I do hope that whoever's leading them will be willing to take risks to take care of them. I mean, I hope that's the case now and not just as a, as a, as a retired naval officer, but as a father, um, you know, it'd be important to me to know leaders out there are willing to take risk on behalf of their crew, because that's what leaders are supposed to do. Absolutely. Um, you know, so everyone who serves and transitions from military service to civilian life has a story to share. After 30 years of serving your country, you retired from the Navy. What was transitioning from captain to civilian like for you, Brad? I, I'm just interested to know. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably still figuring that out, to be honest. Uh, yeah. It, uh, one, it was it's, it's enjoyable. I mean, I loved everything I did, but I'm glad, I'm glad I have you know that I'm healthy. I'm glad that you know we're in a position where we can do new, you know, take on new challenges and new adventures. And I really like the freedom. Um, I mean, I like the freedom to grow my hair a little bit, or you know, to to travel when you want to and and go surfing when you feel like you need to. And you don't always have that. And that's true with any job, really. But, you know, I've really learned to kind of create a positive life-work balance in a way that I probably wasn't able to do in the military, or at least I took for granted. And I, and I strive to, and, and I tried to find those moments that it was important to me to have a good life-work balance when I was in. But now that I'm out, I have more free time to do that. So that part I enjoy. Um, you know, less than about 6% of the nation has is serving or has ever served. It's a pretty small number. And I think when you come from the military where everybody's in the service and everyone around you is in the service, you don't realize it's still a small number, which means that there's a language barrier and there's um, there's a lot you have to explain and a lot of people just don't understand what you did. I mean, we know that, okay, people go out and serve or they go on deployment or they go into combat, but I don't think the other 93% of the nation really understands what that means. And that's not a bad thing. I don't want them always worried about it, but it means that you have to help translate your skills you have to understand there's a language barrier. Um, you know, I think I made the joke once I was at my last job and I made the comment I was going to go PT, which in the military means you're going to go work out. It's physical training, um, not physical therapy, which is what they assume, but they also just didn't understand the term. And this is a veteran focused nonprofit. I just took for granted that, you know, the language that I was used to after 30 years 
wasn't understood by everybody. So there's definitely a transition piece to it. But I also find it, but I find it exciting adventures. I like that, you know, you can choose your path, so to speak. And, and, um, in the military, you, you have to give up a lot of that, you know, your, your career path and what you do is often dictated. And it certainly was for me for not just my 30 years in the Navy, but you had on my Naval Academy time, it was over three decades of time spent, uh, really almost all my entire adult life. So I, I've found it exciting, adventurous, um, challenging in, in some ways, but but I'm still excited by the fact that I can kind of choose my own adventure, like those books we read when we were kids. Yeah, those are my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so even after retiring, you, Brett, are still in service. Let's talk now about how you serve veterans with the work that you do. Sure. I, I um, yeah, I, I you know, when you leave the service, the military, you try to find another team to be part of. And there's a lot of similarities in the nonprofit world as the military. You know, nonprofits are focused on a mission, but they also don't pay a lot. So there's a lot of similarities <laughs> there in the military. Um, but I found that, you know, in, in that, I found an organization that I was able to become, be part of and run operations for a veteran-focused nonprofit that helps out with uh, veterans that struggle with mental health and homelessness and and employment stuff and and that's a big challenge i think that the entire nation is facing and it's a way for me here in the in the southern california community to get involved in, in community issues in a way that i you know most of my focus in the military had been on a global scale and i was worried about you know things in foreign countries all over the world now it's a chance to kind of focus on some more regional issues or local issues and i think that's important for all of us i think people should get involved in their local community issues whatever they might be and find a way they can help out um, you know, I did it full time in this in the nonprofit world. You don't have to do it full time, and there's many nonprofits that would love to have people just come by and help out. And I think it would make people more aware of those challenges. And the homelessness homelessness one is a big one. I mean, we see it all up and down the coast, um, and it's magnified by drug problems that we have. And there's no easy solution. But so I spent the last year working with an organization. Now I'm actually going to move on to the board of directors with Veterans Village of San Diego helping guide them. And then I'm helping out with another group called STEP, which is Support the Enlisted Project. And that helps actually active duty uh, servicemen and women and their families that struggle financially. And they, they might just be in a situation because of, you know, just financial decisions they've made or challenges based on a high cost of living area like San Diego where I'm at. And they just might need a little bit of help to kind of get over those those bumps in the road to get through a month of payments or whatever the case may be. And then we provide grants to them and financial training with the idea that you don't come back. The goal is we not only give you a little bit of money to help you get through this month or next month um, with some bills or payments, but then we're going to force you to take, take on some uh, financial training to prevent it from happening again with a real, you know, huge success rate, like 94% of them never need assistance again. So that's kind of the proactive approach to preventing the homeless piece. So right now, I guess I've got it bracketed between the front end being proactive and and helping folks that are struggling, particularly, you know, young active duty that that really that affects their ability to go on and do things within the military and their readiness capabilities, as well as the back end of the problem when they're homeless and they, you know, they struggle. Um, and that's on the other side, the more reactive approach. So that's, yeah, that's what I've been doing for the last year. I, I find it rewarding, challenging in a way I hadn't expected, um, but inspired as well by the number of people that, that do do this full time or you know, their entire lives because they're passionate about with these, some of these projects. And uh, again, you don't get rich doing it, but, uh, but you, you know, at least financially, but maybe you get rich and rewarded in different ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so not only 
serving, you also enjoy surfing. So let's talk about this book of yours, Surf When You Can. And let's talk about surfing. How long have you been a surfer? And what do you enjoy most about it? Um, so I think I probably started surfing up in Northern California when I was a young kid, which is not a great place to learn to surf. It's cold, there's big sharks. It's really, really cold. Uh, so, but I was exposed to it. And obviously, you know, the military, you move all over the world. So there was times that I would be in San Diego and you can surf for Hawaii, which isn't a bad place to surf. There's other times where you live, you know, I lived in Tennessee near Memphis, which wasn't a great place to surf or even Italy wasn't a great place to surf. So, so it's kind of been sporadic, I guess. Um, I've enjoyed it. I like, I like doing anything outdoors, to be honest, whether it's hiking or camping uh you know or or sailing or fishing or surfing um, but surfing has been one that i enjoy a lot it's for many reasons one i like being on the water i mean that's the navy the navy blood in me i guess right i like to be out on the ocean and and take all that in even if the surf isn't great it's just nice to paddle out and be in the water and, and you know maybe have some seals or some dolphins swim by you and as you wait uh, for the next set to come in. I mean, the reality is when you're surfing, you're actually standing up on a wave for a very small portion of it. The rest of the time, you're either maneuvering or you're waiting. Um, but I enjoy the solitude. I enjoy getting away from, you know, today where you're, you're just this data-rich environment with cell phones and iWatches and information overload. So it's a chance to get away from it all because you generally don't have that out there or you shouldn't. If you're out on the wave and you are got a cell phone with you, you're probably doing something wrong. Um, <laughs> I enjoy the ritual aspect too. My, I have three boys and, and they've all kind of surfed at times. My wife surfed when she was younger. So when we go to the beach, it's, it's fun to, to load up the car and go check out the surf and then kind of egg each other on and then get on the water. And that's, that's been part of the fun too, as I got older and the kids are getting, you know, older uh, and a chance to it's a, become a family activity for us and spend a couple hours. And that's, that's, that's enjoyable. Even when you're on the water, you're, you're by yourself surfing your own way, particularly, but you're out on the water together and, and you can talk all that. So. So I, so I enjoy it. I think as a leader too, I found that, and this is why it became the title of the book, you know, that the book is really based on everything I learned over the last 30 plus years of, you know, my Navy career. I'm really about leadership in life. Uh, there's only a small chapter on the Theodore Roosevelt and COVID, but there's many things I learned along the way that, that maybe got, you know, helped me make decisions I did when I was on board the Roosevelt and we had COVID. But one of those is surfing. I think the importance of for anybody particularly a leader is to find that time to get away and think, you know, cause you're going to be able to get away and not worry about emails or phone calls or meetings. You're going to get away and a chance to, you know, to, you know, get some exercise, kind of get away from it all. And maybe even think strategically, you know, think about the big picture of where you're trying to go as an organization or where you're trying to go as a ship, you know, in terms of, you know, you know, as a company, where do you want to be in the next couple of years? And, and I think in today's environment, we don't give ourselves enough time as leaders to do that. We need to find ways to do that. And that can be, it doesn't have to be surfing. It can be hiking or skiing or yoga, whatever the case may be, but a way to get away and from all the distractions and think the big thoughts. Cause I think that's important. I think as a leader, you might be the only person looking downrange, you know, on where the organization needs to go and you need to provide yourself time to do that. So surfing is one of the many things I try to capture in, in this book and, and uh, it's not a book about surfing. So if you're trying to learn to surf, you could, you should read that chapter, but, um, but there's probably, you should probably go take a lesson somewhere because I'm still a very mediocre surfer, but, but I enjoy it. And I, uh, never, no waves the same. And I always learn something and I always have a good experience. So no, no bad day gets worse by surfing as they say. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Uh, you know, so, so in your book, again, of, of lessons in life, loyalty, leadership, 
um, of all the many lessons that are featured there, that are shared there, what is beyond the one that you just shared? Is there a specific lesson that you say, okay, if you're going to remember this one thing, remember this? Yeah, there's just one. I think, you know, one that stands out that I try to, I try to share with people is, you know, when in doubt, be kind. And I think there's this misunderstanding that by being kind, you're, you're, you're showing weakness. I think being kind is actually a position of strength. I think when you're strong and as a leader, as a person, you're actually in a better position to be kind. And, and by being kind, you, in many ways, you strengthen your own position. Not, and it's not a, it's not a reciprocal thing. It just means that, you know, you, when you can help somebody out, it should make you feel good about yourself, but also a chance to help them out. And that makes the organization stronger or your community stronger. And I think many people, I think sometimes they misinterpret that. They think by being kind, by letting somebody cut in the traffic or, you know, when you don't give somebody benefit of the doubt and you're, and you're trying, you know, you, we get all kind of tense about things. That's to me, that's weakness. That's insecurity that drives that. But when you're strong and as, you know, whether a person or a leader and you can stand in a position of strength, you can magnify that. And that's a good opportunity to be kind to people. So, you know, I, I like, you know, in the military, we, we're in the business of war fighting. I mean, they know I learned how to drive ships and run big organizations and fly helicopters and fly fighters. And I got to do some pretty cool things. Um, and I always liked though, when I could be kind to people, I found that was a good kind of balance to this hard edge, very strong lifestyle that you lead in the military, but a chance to be kind. And I think that we can all benefit from that and know that it's not weakness to be kind. It's actually strength it actually makes you stronger. I love that. I love this lesson. Um, a lesson that more people need to learn. Um, you know, so bring us up to speed. What are you doing right now? And what's your next? Where are we at? <laughs> um, surfing a lot more. I still got to get my game on a little bit more. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I spend time in the nonprofit world, both on the homeless side as well as the more proactive side, like we talked about. So with Veterans Village of San Diego and then Step Support the Enlisted Project. And I, and I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, I, this, the book and, and my career have given me opportunities to talk about leadership. So I get to travel around a little bit and talk to groups about leadership in the military uh, and share kind of the stories of, of things that I learned. And I think there's a good audience for it. And the book's been a great way for me to kind of capture that in a way I can share it with a much broader audience. You know, I used to joke that my family and my friends got tired of my stories, so I had no other option but to write a book. And, and, uh, and now I can share it and talk about it. So, so I'm trying to have a lot more flexible schedule. Um, you know, for 30 plus years, it's like, you know, you're, it's a set schedule. You're working pretty hard every day. Now I kind of enjoy a more irregular schedule, I guess, and get to help out in the homeless community, help out on the front end with the nonprofit world and then travel a little bit and speak. And so, and then, you know, and then kind of look at, I, I mean, I enjoy the corporate stuff too. I enjoy helping out companies, businesses grow and, and do good things. And so I guess I'm still kind of all over the place, uh, but I, I actually like that. I like that I can kind of pick and choose the buffet of life as they call it and figure out you know, if I really want to lock into any one thing or just kind of do what I'm doing, helping out here and there in between the nonprofit, the corporate side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, awesome. Uh, so I do have one more question for you and it is this for those who have a hard decision to make and they're trying to make the right one as best they can. What advice do you have for them? I think, be able to make a decision you can live with, not just in the moment, but in the future as well. And, and if you remind yourself the importance of not just right here and now, but the long-term impact of that, 
Uh, I think it applies to not just, I mean, it applies to leadership, it applies to governance, it applies to community stuff. You know, we all want to solve problems right now, but how do you, how do you make a decision that's going to help you solve a long-term problem? Um, and, and ideally both. Life, life is not black and white. We know that, right? There's a difference of opinions and everything else. And so there are no real easy decisions in most cases when it comes to being a leader faced with, you know, these kind of challenges. But I think make a decision you can live with. Make a decision you know that 10 years from now you're going to be okay with, um, you know, so, and you make the best decision you can. And, and I kind of, I go back to, you know, as a leader, if you're not one to risk your, your job, you're, you know, as a leader, then you're probably not, shouldn't be leading anyways. Because really, in the end of the day, that's just a job. And, and uh, you know, in the military, it's a career and it's a calling. I get that. Um, but at the end of the day, leaders are there to take care of people, to make an organization better, you know, to, to empower and inspire and motivate. And if you're not willing to take a risk to do that and make sure you're doing it on their behalf, then you're probably not the right person to lead anyways. So don't be afraid of that. And, and know that if you make the right decision, it doesn't matter what happens with your job. It, it, in the end of the day, you're going to be able to live by it. And those those are things that you know. Obviously, I went through in my particular situation, but um, you know, knowing it wasn't a black and white. But in the end of the day, I feel like I could still live with that. And I, I made it for the right reasons. And it, in the end of the day, it was just a job that I was willing to take risk with um, because leaders are there to take care of people. Thank you so very much, Brett, for taking this time for yeah. sharing your story. Um, excited to be diving into your book diving it's kind of funny <laughs> um thank you for helping all of us become a bit more aware now thank you yeah no I, I i appreciate the opportunity to chat with you guys and i've been doing some more you know i got to see some of the stuff you've done recently and i'm, I'm inspired by what you guys do and the difference you're making so keep keep making a positive difference but uh enjoy the chance to chat with you today i've so enjoyed this thank you so much Tune into our podcast, subscribe to our magazine, find us and join us online. Visit IamAwareNow.com. We will no longer wait for permission to change the world. Together, we are aware now.